my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakush, and today we are on the road back to Quincy and the home of John Adams, our second president, and what he called Peacefield. Before we get started, I do want to remind you about going on to our website as much as possible. The website's going to have the links to other readings. It's going to have recommended books. It's also going to have photographs from my trips, so you'll want to check that out each week. You'll also want to be checking out the previous season's episode on that individual. So for today, you'll want to check out season one, episode two, John Adams and Braintree. I did want to thank again my donors for visiting the president and everybody who has helped to get the word out on visiting the president. Your help is greatly appreciated. Sharing and subscribing, participating in the social media, all those are great ways that you can help to get the word out on visiting the president. The people who've donated are Sammy and Tom Fakush, Nancy and Terry Workamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakush, Gail Rittenhouse, Connie and Adam Luck, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, AJ Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Callahan, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Jim and Laurel Brailer, Eric Engartner, and new donor, Kara Steiner. And I appreciate all of you for your support. Now, when we had left off, we had talked about John Adams being elected to the Massachusetts legislature and then in 1774 elected to the First Continental Congress. He had three major contributions to that Congress. First, he sought to gain Southern support for the Continental effort. Second, he savagely nominated George Washington to serve as Commander-in-Chief of the Army, ensuring with both of those efforts that it wouldn't just be about Boston being this group of rebels, but then it would be a completely unified effort. And then he's going to serve on the committee tasked with seeking out foreign aid, beginning a process that would lead to France joining the effort. But most notably, he's going to serve on the committee tasked with articulating what will become the Declaration of Independence alongside Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. Adams and Jefferson would be the only signers of the Declaration to also serve as President of the United States. And while Jefferson did a majority of the writing, Adams was a very big sounding board, and their friendship would be strong for this period of time. And though, of course, we know it eventually will sour, this is going to be what gets them the opportunity to come back to it and the warm feelings that it will rekindle late in life. John was a little too old to serve in the revolution, and so he is solely focused on the diplomatic front. He's dispatched to Paris to convince the French to join the American war effort. There he clashes with almost every member of the delegation, being famously pretty prudish and very Puritan about Ben Franklin's sexual appetite, for instance. He returns to Massachusetts just in time to help author the Massachusetts Constitution, and then he gets sent abroad once again, this time to The Hague in the Netherlands, where he gets formal recognition and loans for the Americans from the Dutch. Finally, he gets sent back to Paris this time to negotiate the Treaty of Paris and ending the revolution, setting up terms for the French, the Spanish, and the British. He, of course, angers the French in ignoring the American Congress, which recommended setting the United States boundary at the Appalachian Mountains and leaving the land between the Mississippi and those mountains vulnerable. 
Adams was then sent to London as American minister to Great Britain, but the tensions between the mother country and new nation were still far too fresh, and he accomplished very little. He was all too eager to get back to the United States, but promptly learned on his return that he had been elected as the first vice president of the United States. His ego at first was very destroyed at the idea that he had not received a single first place vote. This is John Adams who we're talking about, but he would kind of grow to the idea until actually serving in it. John does not think too much of the office once it gets going. Notably, he had not been around when the Constitution was being written, and so any of the duties are things that he learns and has to accept without too much of his input. He has a quote, My country has contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man or his imagination conceived. John's term as vice president is largely insignificant, much to his dismay. He's bogged down early in the office over the minutia, what the Senate should and should not do, and what he as president of the Senate had as his powers, and starts off some of the sessions just lecturing them. And the group of people who are all pretty smart men are going to look at him like, who are you to tell us what to do, right? He's labeled a monarchist, deeply influenced by the pomp and majesty that those foreign offices that he had seen in London and Paris had, and famously proposes that George Washington be referred to as His Highness President of the United States and protector of their liberties. John is probably thinking about himself, too. He very clearly is angling for that job once he's done being vice president, but it's also going to strike a lot of the people around him as being the exact same thing that we had just fought a war to get away from. His detractors are going to call him his rotundity, pointing out how big he was compared to George Washington, and don't think for a second that John didn't know what people were saying about him. Sitting senators routinely accused him of simply plotting that he was succeeding Washington without an election, and he had to kind of deny that throughout. As with the previous two elections, John Adams will not receive any competition from fellow Federalists, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have any competition at all. George Washington will all but endorse Adams to be his successor, but Washington's Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, was the candidate and leader of the opposition, with those Jeffersonians unifying behind what was called the Republican Party. Of course, the men were once very close friends around the time of the Declaration of Independence and even when they were serving in foreign courts. But their time in Washington's administration and growing tension in those political factions led to them being opposed. And most of what the tension would come down to is going to be Jefferson and his friend James Madison being what we'd consider strict constructionists, that they believed that what was written in the Constitution was the way it should be. And the people who were on Alexander Hamilton's side, and increasingly he has the ear of both George Washington and John Adams, that it should be about implied powers and the document should be able to breathe a bit. And then those beliefs will then kind of trickle down to other areas of governance to the point that you do have these factions who are really kind of at odds with one another. John Adams very clearly believes in this idea of there being a a natural aristocracy to the United States, that people like him who wanted to be good leaders for this new country should have gone to school, should have known their law, should have been wealthy, and that 
the rest of us, those of us who were not wealthy, those of us who were not well-educated, just weren't going to measure up. And that was the way the government should play out. But the government should not cater to the rest of us. It should really kind of envelop the the very rich and, and wealthy among us. You can see where this would have really huge problems. Now, being one of these early elections, remember, the candidates themselves do not do any of the campaigning. They're going to instead have as their supporters doing the very active work of kind of trying to paint each other's candidate with as broad a brush and as ugly a brush as possible. Adams to them is going to always be talked about as a monarchist and being distrustful of the judgment of the masses, whereas Jefferson put a lot of faith in the American people. But he also is going to be very oppositional to a strong central government, and he is going to get a lot of criticism for indulging the revolution in France and the notion of there being this kind of revolutionary fervor. He remains very opposed to any monarchical creep that he sees in this new country, including with John Adams. Alexander Hamilton ostensibly is going to be on the outside looking in during that election. He tries to turn the election so that both of his hated opponents, Adams and Jefferson, would lose and give the election to Thomas Pinckney, who he thought he might be able to more control. At this point, each elector has two votes, not indicating which one was for president and which for vice president. And so Hamilton schemed to have Southern Federalists vote for Pinckney and just anyone else, while New Englanders would then vote for Adams and Pinckney. Hamilton schemed to have New Englanders vote for Adams and Pinckney together, while Southern Federalists would vote for Pinckney and then anyone else. Adams would then remain vice president to the new president. Thomas Pinckney. The scheme was exposed, however, and Pinckney was punished for these machinations. The final result was 71 votes for John Adams and just 68 for Thomas Jefferson, making the political opponents now president and vice president. John Adams greeted that news as a possible salve to their political tensions and to hope rebuild their friendship, but that, of course, is going to be pretty naive. Now we turn our attention to talking about John Adams and his love life. You might not believe it, and I kind of had a hard time with this, but John was a little bit of a ladies' man, very fond of flirting and being described, believe it or not, as masculine and intelligent. His father had drilled into John's head that any, any illicit sexual activity automatically came with venereal diseases. There wasn't a thing as a clean woman. It was that they all harbored sexually transmitted diseases. So John was actually celibate until they got married. Late in life, he is very proud of the idea that no woman was ever able to be embarrassed by him showing up in a room or being near him, and that his children never had to worry about illegitimate siblings, something that many of the contemporaries that he had would not be able to say. He comes very close to proposing to Hannah Quincy, who's the daughter of Josiah Quincy. His son, who was also named Josiah, would be the one who helps John in defending the British soldiers after the Boston Massacre. John wanted to be successful as a lawyer so that he could provide well for his family, and so he wooed Hannah while he was still struggling. Everyone in town thought that they were engaged, and John came very close one afternoon to proposing, but friends came into the room very quickly and he scotched what he was planning to do. He decided that he needed more time, but Hannah could not wait. 
and ended up getting married twice. After Abigail, who we'll talk about in a second, passes away, and she had been twice widowed, Hannah calls on 84-year-old John, and they share a nice afternoon of remembrance together, which I thought was kind of nice. Now, if you're familiar with any of these first first ladies, it's going to be Abigail Adams. She, even today, is kind of held up as one of the, if not top three first ladies, certainly in the top five. One of the things that we are able to be grateful about with John and Abigail Adams is the fact that they have a very long and complex correspondence, that we're able to see their ideas, see what they share with one another over the course of their lifetime, and we don't get that with every president and first lady. Abigail Smith had been born in 1744 in Weymouth, Massachusetts, to the Reverend William and Elizabeth Quincy Smith. She had been sickly as a child and could not attend school, but she loves to read and became very well-versed in poetry, philosophy, and politics. The Adams family, and I know that I always think of the sitcom, but you don't need to think like that, and the Smiths, Abigail's family, knew each other, but it was not until John went with a friend to Weymouth that he was attracted to young Abigail. She was about nine years younger than him. Her mother thought that she was too good for a poor farmer from the country, but eventually gave in. John, as we've talked about, has these frequent absences where he's going to just be away. And when we talk about his children, he's kind of welcoming of it at one point, saying he can't get any work done if he were to stay at home. And so he's at the office sometimes to like 15 hours At first, when they're away, the correspondence is mainly love letters, but over time she demands more detail in the proceedings. And of course, you're likely familiar with Abigail saying during the declaration writing, remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power in the hands of their husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. And boy, does that resonate over time. Abigail was left to care for the children during the mounting military campaigns, and John had just told her, when you see any danger coming, go to the woods. And she was kind of on her own in those incidences. She tended to her children and community as smallpox ravaged the town and became bitter over time as John was away so frequently, at one point going about 10 months without hearing from him at all. She also, interestingly, starts a kind of side hustle where he sends things that he finds in these European cities, and she's able to sell them for a pretty nice profit. She joins John in London for one stretch, impressed with the city and delighted to see her son, John Quincy, but she was all too happy to return to the farm and to her other children. The home that they had purchased while in London was disappointing to Abigail after her time abroad, and we'll talk about that later. She's also unimpressed with life in the capital cities of New York and Philadelphia when she's second lady, and that they had to maintain their home on top of the home in Quincy out of their own pocket. And so in some cases, she'll go back and manage the farm, manage the household and say, like, you have fun here. And maybe those earlier absences made it more tolerable for her. As First Lady, Abigail mails letters to newspapers with her name disguised, supporting her husband's policies, but she does become a bit of an imperialist in her views, thinking that John should serve as president and she as president's wife until they abuse the public trust with no elections required. And again, you can see that kind of monarchist creep coming in that Jefferson was rightly kind of wary of. 
None of her experiences in foreign cities or expanding cities prepared her for the unfinished state of the executive mansion in the swamp that we now call Washington, D.C. The Adamses moved in right before finding out that he had lost re-election, and she's going to hightail it back to Quincy. Abigail is frequently depicted as using the East Room to hang laundry, but when you think about how horrible the conditions in that city would have been, it kind of makes sense. Abigail takes off, like I said, in mid-February 1801, a month before John. She becomes very sickly in their post-presidency and battles different illnesses until her death in 1818 at 73 years old, eight years before John. It is Abigail, however, who first commences that correspondence with Thomas Jefferson, and she kind of takes him to task in several places, telling him that she thinks he's wrong, that he needs to apologize, and it's going to be her that has a whole correspondence with Thomas way before John and he pick things up. You might also remember from season one, episode six, how Abigail was a very kind of hands-on mother always in her children's business, and it really caused John Quincy to kind of resent her constantly nagging at him. Abigail is buried beside John in the church at Quincy, and we'll talk about that again in season three. In terms of their children, John and Abigail have four children who will live into adulthood. And again, as we talked about in season one, episode six, you know, there is a kind of give and take that comes with John and John Quincy Adams as fathers. In both cases, they're going to raise a son that they're very proud of and who they consider kind of a diplomat. And then they're going to have two sons that will kill themselves, that will be alcoholics or commit suicide. And of course, today we have a better dialogue about getting help for mental illness. But the idea that they were driving their son, that there were like only two paths for them to go, one to be a great success or to just feel completely as a disappointment. And John really does not do himself favors when you look at how he treats his sons. And he's pretty explicit about how little he thinks of the responsibilities of a father. He'll write in later years that he always considered being a parent more the mother's job and that he was there to kind of provide instruction. In a letter he writes to John Quincy Adams, and this is quoted from a book called First Dads that I've been looking at from Joshua Kendall, looking at the different presidents, he puts both John and John Quincy Adams in a category he calls the tiger dads, basically overbearing parents. He writes to John Quincy, you come into life with advantages which will disgrace you if your success is mediocre. And if you do not rise to the head, not only of your own profession, but of your country, it will be owing to your own laziness, slovenliness, and obstinacy. Basically, it's on you. I've given you everything that you might need. They're also quoting where he gets really mad at John Quincy when he is at this point just 13 years old and says, I hope you will take better care to write well. Can't you keep a steady hand? A year later, he says, when John Quincy is writing to him from St. Petersburg, you've not informed me whether the houses are brick, stone, or wood, whether they are seven stories high or only one, you've said nothing about the religion of the country, whether it is Catholic or Protestant. And so it's very clear that he wants from his sons who he sees himself as, but is going to, I think, be a very difficult person to have any strong affection for. And it doesn't become clear that he has a close relationship with any of his children, save for his daughter. 
Abigail, or Nabby as she's called, will be married to John's secretary, William Smith. And that is going to be the source of a lot of anger for John. He is betrayed, he feels, by William going after his daughter. But he will later become a congressman from New York, but nothing will ever allow for John to kind of forgive him. John Quincy, of course, we know will become the sixth president of the United States. But before that, had he not become president, he still has one of the most distinguished resumes of any of our presidents, let alone in our first 10. Then he also has Charles, who will die of alcoholism in the waning days of John's presidency. And there's speculation that he struggled with all sorts of different issues, that he liked prostitutes and may have enjoyed gay prostitutes. And then there's Thomas, who will become a lawyer and serve as a secretary to John Quincy. But he also dies of alcoholism and in a really large debt. And it's very clear that these children kind of weigh heavily on John. And when he writes to Abigail at one point, he says, nothing my enemies can say about me can hurt me as much as my children have done. And you just think today of how different our dialogue about being a parent is and you know maybe not placing those kinds of expectations on your children. But it's also clear that John really thought that He was doing the best thing for his children by not being as involved and doing these things for the country that would also help them out. And he at one point writes that if they don't get that, if they don't understand that I was away from home so I could better their future, then they're not my children. (laughs) And so, again, he's just a very kind of cut and dry where parenting is concerned and um, a bitter man. You know, it wasn't like he saved his affection for his children, but it's also not like he was a glad hander in public and then treated them crappily. He is going to be pretty consistent, and I think that is going to not give him a pass, but it's also going to make it so that, you know, you really can't say that he was duplicitous in that way. He's just a jerk in a lot of ways and didn't spare his children from his wrath. One of the best examples I can give you to demonstrate this is that when John Quincy Adams has his first son and John and Abigail's first grandson, he names the child George Washington Adams. And supposedly, John Adams is so mad that he spends the summer cussing anytime he thinks of it. And Abigail even sends a letter admonishing John Quincy, like, how could you do this? It appears that John thought that once George was dead, he didn't need any more honoring. (laughs) And so he ends up being really close to the kid, but he does have that kind of beef with the idea that he would name his first kid George Washington. John Quincy does notably name his second son John Adams II. Now, remember, we're only going to do the highlights of each presidency, and there are other sources that you can look to for more information in depth on on some of these topics. But with John, there's a few that will definitely stand out. One other thing to be aware of is that we talk about the post-presidency in season three. So with presidents like John Adams who will lose an election, we will drop things off before that election comes. And instead of talking about his defeated election, we will talk about that with the person who beat him, in this case, Thomas Jefferson, who we'll talk about in next week's episode. Adams' presidency is probably best known for defying George Washington's two big warnings from his farewell address. He, remember, had warned against political factions and indulging in foreign policy entanglements. 
The political factions are, of course, out of John Adams's control, but his ego and stubbornness did little to calm those tensions. The criticisms John will receive reach a fever pitch over what becomes known as the XYZ affair. Adams had wanted to calm tensions with France after their government perceived George Washington and the result of Jay's treaty as being pro-Britain. France started harassing American ships, so President Adams dispatches three diplomats to Paris to meet with the French Foreign Minister Talleyrand, but they're refused an audience. Instead, they're going to be approached by three French emissaries who demand a bribe in exchange for that audience. When they sent word to Adams, he kind of flies off the handle and started to prepare war measures. His Vice President Jefferson and Republicans will accuse Adams of exaggerating that bribe. Remember, Jefferson is very sympathetic to the French, and they demand evidence to which Adams will refuse on the grounds of executive privilege. For two years, those tensions between the United States and France will be on a simmer, but Adams does not pursue direct conflict. Eventually, another diplomatic mission was received, but the damage to Adams will be done. Adding insult to injury, he'll sign four bills into law, which sought to quell any criticism. Most famously is the Alien and Sedition Act, as they came to be known, which had laws which made it difficult for foreigners to become citizens and to get rid of aliens and to get rid of any foreign citizens who were considered dangerous. Most of those would happen to have Republican leanings, and he would just say that's a coincidence. You and I know better. There was also the Sedition Act, which allowed the federal government to fine and imprison anyone who shall, quote, write, print, utter, or publish scandalous and malicious writing against the government of the United States, either House of the Congress or the President, with the intent to defame or bring them into contempt or disrepute. Those laws are so broad and give him so much power that, of course, they will send up howls from the Republicans opposed to him. They lapse in 1800, but they showed Adams and his supporters in Congress to be very thin-skinned, and the Republicans will run around with this idea that they are opposed to free speech and freedom of the press, that we had fought a war and wrote into our Bill of Rights and our Constitution that very decade. Adams's other big legacy relates to how he ends his presidency. You likely know how he will lose and then make trouble for Thomas Jefferson with what's known as the midnight appointment and that he stalks out of the White House early on the day his term ends. But we'll save that for next season as we talk about the post-presidency of John Adams. We'll also talk about it, of course, next week when we talk about Thomas Jefferson and what he inherits. In terms of one thing that I will describe as well in these episodes is going to be their impact on the White House, or at this case, it was known as the Executive Mansion. And so some of the like more fun stories about the president. But John Adams, you, of course, know that they're the first ones to move into the White House with John moving in in November of 1800, right before he finds out that he's going to lose this election, which has to be a, a touch of irony. The home was completely unfurnished, and many of the rooms on the second floor don't even have a full roof. And so he's going to approach that ground level floor very open, and they're going to use what is today the green room as their main kind of receiving room. They set up the state dining room in another way, and we talked about how the East Room is going to be where Abigail hangs up her laundry. They have one room in the second floor that's going to be covered and and completely fine, but John actually lies to Abigail and says the house is ready, and that also contributes to how mad she is when she shows up. Famously, when he's writing to her, he's going to include a prayer 
that will later be used and inscribed on a mantelpiece in the state dining room. I pray heaven to bestow the best blessings on this house and all that shall thereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men rule under this roof. Now, you and I both know that that will not always come to pass, but it's a very nice idea and one that you really wouldn't expect from John Adams based on what we've talked about here. Now, we talked about John and Abigail's early home in Braintree in season one, the home where John Quincy Adams was born and where John's early political and lawyer career was born. John, of course, will spend the next three decades on the move from various committees in Philadelphia to Paris, London, and Amsterdam, and then back to the nation's capitals of New York and Philadelphia as president and vice president. While in London in 1788, John will negotiate the purchase of a home in Braintree called the Borland Place. The house had been built in 1731 by Leonard Vassal Borland. You see it referred to as the Vassal Place, other times the Borland Place. Borland had been a wealthy sugar planter from Jamaica who used it as a kind of country home, but left it when he, as a loyalist, will flee to England. In John and Abigail's memories, and they're over in Europe when this is going down, the home is a very large and grand structure on the other side of town from where they had been. It was certainly larger than their salt box home from before their time abroad, but when they get back and Abigail goes through the home, she is thoroughly disgusted. And it's clear she had become very accustomed to the tall ceilinged airy rooms of Paris and London with fine furnishings in the minister's homes. Abigail wrote to her daughter, it quote, feels like a wren's nest. Uh, like the female chicken, and that it would have just been so stifling or claustrophobic. I remember the guide saying something about how she told her daughter, you can't wear your hat indoors because you won't be able to (laughs) get through any of the rooms without brushing against the ceiling the entire time. The ground floor has a paneled living room, an entry hall, and a dining room with a detached kitchen that they then joined. The upstairs had just two bedrooms. Abigail began adding to the home and refurbishing it while John was serving as vice president and president, including adding an entire new wing with a new entrance point, a spacious long room, as they called it, and then doubling the floor plan on the second floor and attaching an almost full attic. It took John at least two full weeks to travel between Philadelphia and Quincy when he is vice president and president and up to three and a half, depending on how bad the conditions would be. He took to staying for very long periods of time, including nine uninterrupted months when he's vice president, and seven full months in 1799, the longest time any president has been away from the seat of government in American history. This led, of course, to some within his party urging him to return home and noting that public sentiment was against a president farming at home while there were major issues going on. And it might have struck some like King Louis XVI living at Versailles when there was business going on in the capital. It also, of course, requires a lot of work to get any official correspondence from Philadelphia to Quincy for the president's attention. Abigail had added a long book room, as she called it, what we'd call a library, with a very long fireplace for John to use as his office. In 1800, right before the election, John was in Quincy from June through November 1st, giving you an idea just how long he would stay. He called it the Old House, but over time starts calling it Peacefield. 
more as a hope for his retirement in the farming he hoped to be able to return to with 40 acres of farmland and what had been planted as orchards and planned gardens, along with what will be the Stone Library for housing Adam's family books. In later years, he calls it Stonyfield, a nod to the rocky soil and probably his own temperament as he is now a retired man. The home was donated by the Adams family to the federal government and is maintained by the National Park Service as the Adams National Historic Park, which also includes the birthplaces. When it comes to visiting, you can visit the grounds of Peacefield from dawn until dusk, but the tours of the home are restricted to when the park is open. And remember when we talked in season one, episodes two and six, you have to get tickets at the visitor center and take a tour from the birthplaces to Peacefield. It's a great tour, but it is only open from May through November of each year. So you will definitely want to check the website and you'll definitely want to plan your trip so that it's more spring, summer than if you tried to do it in the winter. I was able to go in June of 2019. I wanted to make a kind of concerted effort to visit these major Massachusetts sites. And so I planned to do it. And if you listen back to season one, episodes two or six, you'll hear about when I went through the birthplace. So again, how that works is you go to the visitor center. It has a gift shop, it has a video, and then they call for the time when the trolley shows up. You get on the trolley, they take you first to the birthplaces, take you through both of those buildings, you get back on the trolley, and then ride on the, to the other side of Quincy, where you go to Peacefield, you get down, and you tour through that house and the Stone Library as well. On my tour, they took us first into the Stone Library, which we'll talk about a bit more when we talk about episode six and John Quincy Adams. It's going to be his son that builds that structure. But in the main house, and I could immediately see what Abigail was talking about, the ceilings did feel pretty low, but it didn't strike me as too out of place when you visited enough of these kind of historic homes. You know, Americans are just taller than they would have been back then. And we, of course, have the benefit or maybe curse of knowing how some of these other buildings look. And so we would be comparing it to, you know, Monticello or Mount Vernon. And if you hadn't been to those two places, this is a very nice home. I thought it was great. And maybe that is owing to the touches that Abigail will place on the home. Immediately upon entering, there's this very beautiful parlor that has portraits of the different Adamses. There's a giant bust of John Quincy that's kind of right by the door. And there's a very nice parlor. You know, John will, of course, be host to different visitors who would have come through Quincy, but nothing like the hosting that will happen for George Washington or John Adams. Instead, it's going to mainly be family affairs, family business. And so very nice for that. The real showpiece, to my mind, of the Adams home is going to be on the second floor where you get to go into his study. And there it is a very long room, has a giant fireplace in the center. When I went, it was decorated with this kind of maroon wallpaper or painted wall and had a really nice desk with his chair and then all sorts of books and different family mementos, a globe, all sorts of different items that'll really give you a sense of the kind of work that would have gone down in this room, not just for John and his writing and opining about the state of government, but then his correspondence. You know, he was a man who loved his books, loved being able to read and write and to share his ideas. And so you definitely get that sense when you're in that home. 
I do remember after leaving that room, we went through this one room that they said John Quincy had added on that was going to connect the two kind of disparate parts of the original house. And then you go down a back stair into the kitchen. And there you could see the real blend of the different eras of the Adamses living in that house as they try to, you know, certainly improve the technology <laughs> in this place over time. Then there's a very long room that is going to lead you out. And in this room, they had all of the great busts and historic paintings of John, Abigail, and John Quincy Adams. And you also get the sense of the importance of the other Adams family individuals, people like Charles Francis and Henry Adams, who will also make their big contributions. There's also the bedroom where John is going to pass away as well as Abigail, and so you can see the bedroom as it was during that period. It's a very nice bedroom. I, you know, after having been in bedrooms like Rutherford Hayes's and George Washington's, you know, you don't see too many that strike you as being like negative or bad. They kind of just look like bedrooms. And the home will stay in the Adams family all the way into the 1920s. And at various times, it becomes a little bit more rundown, but it is definitely John Quincy's son who will make sure that it is going to look great and, and be a kind of testament to his ancestors. Today, it is a very nice structure and one that I was really impressed by. I think I had only known Abigail's position on the home, and so I went in expecting it to be a lot worse. And instead, I was like, this is a really nice home. And it would have only been after being at Versailles and going to the palaces in London and Amsterdam that you would at all think like, oh, this isn't maybe what they're expecting. But at the same time, when she was at the White House, you know, those were very tall ceilings, but it was unfinished. It wasn't a great place. And so I got to imagine that, you know, certainly it was just a kind of first reaction and then can grow into the home that you want. It's also, you know, begs the question why they didn't just build the house they wanted, but they did love the land. And I think that comes through when you're there. Today, of course, it looks very different than it would have then when it was an active farm, but you do get the sense of just how beautiful that area is. And again, maybe I'm a softie for New England, but I really was charmed by their home as well. What it says about the president, you know, with John Adams, I think you just always get the sense that he is a, a bitter person. He's somebody who is always wanting something else, feeling like he's slighted. And I think the home is kind of emblematic of that. You and I would both go to this place and see it for its historic value, see the well-appointed and well-decorated areas, and just to, you know, be really overwhelmed at how beautiful it was, how nicely taken care of. But to John and Abigail, it's clearly going to not match up to what they'd experienced in Europe. And then for John, you know, you always just get the sense of being unsettled, always wanting something different and, and never being good enough. And I know people like this. You probably know people like that who get off on being unhappy, unsatisfied. And it does strike me that John was definitely like that. There was nothing that was going to ever fill the hole in his heart that he would have had he been able to be loved by people and accepted by people. And he's just a real kind of study in and always wanting what you can't have, right? He recognized he was a difficult person to be around. And rather than trying to be a different person with his children, which we see some presidents doing, 
he's going to be a jerk to them as well. And so there is a reason why you're isolated towards the end of your life. There is a reason why you have a difficult time maintaining friendships. And it would be one thing if he shut himself down to that, but he didn't. You know, he, he does kind of yearn for those things. And there are times when you read the correspondence between John and, and Thomas Jefferson, where he does even try to get him going on some of these debates. And Thomas Jefferson is in a different place. He's like, yeah, we're not going down that road again. There just strikes me as this like hunger for more, whether it's more attention, more debate, more love, whatever it might be. There's always that wanting more. Now, when you go to Peacefield, I don't think you're going to have that feeling. You're going to be completely struck by how beautiful it is, what a great setting it is, and just the sheer history. I can't get over being able to see two presidents' birthplaces side by side and then being able to view their home that they both made an imprint on and have contributions to. It's a it's a cool facility. It's one that really stands out. One I strongly recommend that you go to see if you're ever in or around Boston. This is the one that I think you would really be kind of caught off guard by. You don't hear about Peacefield the way we do the Hermitage, Mount Vernon, Monticello, Montpelier, and it's really a shame because this is a great facility. Now, it'd be awesome if they were open year-round, but I imagine that has more to do with certainly the demand and the upkeep of a place like this in the winter in New England, and you get that sense of prickliness maybe coming through with John. (laughs) Maybe that added to it. As somebody who's been transplanted to Arizona, I know I'm way happier here in the winter than I would be back in Ohio or certainly in New England. And so maybe I'll give him a pass if I think about it like that. So when we come back next week, we'll be talking about Thomas Jefferson, John Adams's vice president and his successor. We'll talk about the tumultuous start that gets him started in his presidency, as well as his completely iconic, I think I've abused that word, but forgive me when I describe it as iconic home. Monticello. We'll also talk about another home that is somewhat off the beaten path and doesn't get nearly the attention Monticello does, but to me is just as cool. So you won't want to miss that as we go to explore Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. Now be sure to be checking out the website again for for links to different articles, including the website for Peacefield, as well as recommended readings for John Adams. The two that really stand out to me when it comes to John Adams, I know David McCullough's John Adams is kind of held up as the only source you'll ever need, and it's for a good reason. It's a really well-done book, comprehensive, and it definitely gives insight into John Adams that we wouldn't get maybe otherwise. John Furling also writes a great biography of John Adams, and so I recommend that one as well. I would be remiss, of course, to not mention the HBO miniseries John Adams with Paul Giamatti as John Adams and Laura Linney as Abigail and just a really star-studded cast. I've probably watched it through three or four times. I'd probably err on four, but I always show different clips to my students. It's just impeccably well done. There's so many important scenes that if you're a fan of this era at all, they actually shoot at some of the major sites and then have really great effects to approximate those that they're not able to do. Some of my favorite scenes to show students, there's a scene where they do the tar and feathering, which I think demonstrates the kind of dangers of a mob mentality. I also love a scene where John is meeting with King George III and shows the real tension of that moment. I always show the inauguration of George Washington. You get the real kind of prickliness of John's behavior at that moment. There's also a great scene when John finds out that he has not won the presidency, 
and you also get the relationship between John and Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, all of these other luminaries that I think just does a really great job of giving you the visual representation that we sorely lack with some of these revolutionary figures. So definitely recommend the HBO miniseries. Throughout this season, I also will be using Houses of the Presidents by Hugh Howard, Away from the White House by Lawrence Knutson, and then Homes of the Presidents by Bill Harris. And as I told you before, I picked up a book called First Dads by Joshua Kendall that I also strongly recommend if you're looking for what they're like as parents. That's something that'll definitely be interesting as we kind of go through the season. Again, be sure to be sharing liking and subscribing with the social media, as well as with the episodes themselves, anything you can do to help get the word out. I really appreciate and I am, it's always great to see the podcast grow and to reach new audiences. And so your help is definitely something that has warmed me greatly. I also encourage you to consider donating as I'm gearing up for this next summer of presidential travels and any monies will be used for that purpose. So with that, let's get in our cars, and I look forward to seeing you out there on the road as we go to visit the presidents. See ya!